How much do we understand about brewing ingredients and the advances that are taking place in this integral part of the sector? With that in mind, we brought together three leading names from across the brewing spectrum to find out. In this panel discussion, which took place at our Brewers' Congress in London, top of the agenda was biotechnology, past, present, future, and how to harness it. In this episode, we hear from Margot Huseman, Stephanie Brindley, and Todd Isbell, who share their brewing expertise and observations of the changes taking place in this fast-moving industry. Panel host Margot Huseman works for Molson Coors as a research and development manager. She got her start in the industry by doing a master's in brewing and distilling and also completing her PhD, which was on understanding the physical chemical stability of dry hopped beer. Stephanie Brindley is a brewing scientist with more than 10 years experience in the industry. As a technical representative at Murphy & Son, she is passionate about the science, creativity and social aspects of beer. And completing the panel is Todd Isbell. A graduate of the Master Brewers program at UC Davis in California, Todd has been a professional brewer for more than 20 years. He is currently the senior brewing technician at the University of Nottingham and International Centre for Brewing Science. So to kick things off, we'll let Margot take things away. <laughs> okay, we've had our comfort break. How is everybody doing? Feeling alive? Yes? <laughs> Excellent. Good. About one person answered me there. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, uh, today we are having a panel discussion on biotechnology, past, present, and future, and how to harness it. My name is Margot Huseman, and I am a research and development manager for the EMEA APAC region of Molson Coors. And today we are joined by two brilliant expert panelists. So we have Steph Ridley from Murphy & Son, and we have Todd Isbell from the University of Nottingham. So just giving a quick introduction for Stephanie. Stephanie is a brewing scientist with over 10 years of industry experience and is passionate about the science, creativity, and social aspects of beer. Her unique perspective on the brewing industry comes from her background in research, where she studied the nutritional requirements and phenotypic properties of brewing yeast, both gaining a master's and a PhD from the University of Nottingham. And she also worked as a brewer at Round Corner in Melton Mowbray before gaining her current role as a technical representative for Murphy & Son. So Thank you. Welcome. Thank you very much. And we have, don't go too close <laughs> <Yeah>. to the mic. <laughs> and we have Todd Isbell from the University of Nottingham. And Todd has a BS in Civil and Environmental Engineering from Clarkson University. And he graduated from the United States Chemical School. He also graduated from the University of California Davis Master Brewer Program and recently received a Master of Research from the University of Nottingham studying Kvike yeast metabolism. So we'll be asking you about that later. Great. So he has been a brewer, professional brewer for 20 years in the States and is currently the senior brewing technician at the University of Nottingham. So Todd, I'm going to actually start with you. As the session is about biotechnology in the past, present, and future, how have you seen it change throughout the years and your 20 years experience in the industry? Yeah, we were discussing this yesterday uh, when we were tossing ideas around for this presentation. And so when I got into the craft beer industry in the early 90s, at 18 years old, I looked it up on the BA website. There was under 400 breweries in the US. And then when I formally got into the industry in 2003, there was about 1,500. And now we're approaching 10,000. And so seeing that massive amount of growth in a short period of, in relatively speaking, a short period of time was pretty amazing. 
uh, the beer styles absolutely exploded, whereas you used to just have a pale ale, a ubiquitous red or amber ale, a stout, and maybe a golden ale. Now there's a multitude, and I forget how many right now that BA has for style guidelines or BJCP, if that's what you use. Uh, there's hundreds, and that's pretty amazing. And with the transportation, um, readiness, as well as social media, and you can get what was once exotic ingredients delivered to your doorstep tomorrow. And the amount of innovation I think that that enables is great, and the competition is also great. And the days of you being an adequate brewery are over. <laughs> Plain and simple. <laughs> yeah. And you really have to have your, your chops up. And continue education. Thank you for uh, coming here. This is always continuing education. But the, we'll get into this later with the history of biotechnology, the history of science, history of brewing science are really interwoven, which is fantastic. And I think I'm swaying away from the actual question. That's okay, that's <laughs> yeah. what we're here for. We're here but to have a conversation. It's a, a really fantastic industry that we're in and we get to embrace ancient, absolutely ancient, noble profession, but then we still have cutting edge technology. And so the differences between when I started and current are also pretty vast from everything from mobile canning, which uh, was a complete train wreck when it started about 10, 15 years ago in the States. Now it's really good and we can get very low um, uh, contamination issues. We can get really low DO content. Total, uh, to don't forget about total package oxygen, not just uh, DO. So, um, but there's a lot, and there's a lot of competition. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So we'll dig into that throughout mm -hmm. the session. So, Steph, moving on to you. You're coming from a really unique um, background and experience, where you have the academic experience and the industrial experience of working in a brewery. Yeah. Where you've seen advancements in things. I mean, I know you have a passion point for yeast. So, so what's yeah. your perspective on the changes throughout the industry and in, in since you've joined? Yeah. I mean. I, for me, it's a really exciting space to work in. Um, it was great to start academically and think about um, ev all the options that were out there. Um, considering that this industry and research into it has been going on for hundreds of years, it's like part of who humans are and why we've gathered together. Absolutely. But um, it's, it, it's just amazing as well to think that those processes were all going on anyway, unbeknownst to us. And as we've investigated them, we can say, oh, so that's why that happens. But also, if I tweak this part of the environment, I can force this to happen. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really great thing to know what's going on and uh, to be able to push that into different directions as well. So Absolutely. Yeah, it's very exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think one thing that we've started to see more interest in, um, and uh, certainly volumes increasing, is the low and no sector and the low and no category. Yep. And again, these are things that we discussed a lot about yesterday. So I'd just like to get your perspectives on um, different technologies and what you think about low alcohol beers, say, 10 years ago, and then yep. what, what advancements have come to the industry now. Yeah. yeah uh, as we were talking about this yesterday, and, and for me, uh, the, the, the low and no sector came in particular focus around eight years ago when I was pregnant. And as a, as a beer drinker and a, and a lover of that sector, I kept you know, going to these events 
Um, I, I was already doing my PhD at the university, so I'd go to these brewing conferences and I'd come to these kind of events and there was nothing there for me to drink, um, which sounds a bit dramatic. I know I can have a glass of water, but... <laughs> who wants water at a brewery? You want a yeah, beer. exactly. <laughs> Come on. And people were like, like, why don't you want the beer? Like, um, and I was like, I do want it. Um, but so the, the options were very limited and they just didn't taste great. They were, they, they were either very sweet or they had like this kind of chemical aftertaste. Absolutely. Um, and so... In those past eight years, the the scene has changed completely. Um, and obviously the craft brewing scene has changed as well. And I think that they've done that together. Yeah. Um, and that there's people who genuinely love beer and the different flavors that you can get from it. And sometimes they either don't want to or they can't enjoy the fact that there's alcohol in beers and they want to experience those flavors without having to worry about drinking alcohol as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's why it's been doing so well. I think we're also seeing a shift in consumer as well, where uh, looking at younger consumers, a lot of younger consumers aren't consuming alcohol, so having low and no options available is something that's actually starting to grow in volume that way. Yeah. And Todd, I know you mentioned yesterday just the change in technologies. Do you want to comment on that today? Sure. The um, when the no alcohol or low alcohol beers started long ago, and it could be, speaking from the States, it would be O'Doul's, Coors Cutter, uh, Sharps uh, from the big three. And they would usually use, uh, well, often would be vacuum distillation, which strips not only the um, ethanol off, but it'll also all the volatiles, especially hop aromatic compounds that we really want, including esters, higher alcohols. So it would really strip a lot of the character of the beer, and they'd be very bland um, liquids, um, quite awful. However, now, with uh, the technology with um, reverse osmosis and fat, there's, are there's a vendor here? Is there a vendor here doing um, membrane? I think there might be. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah, we have the booth. So, uh, but go investigate them. And you can able to create full fermentation, remove the ethanol without reduction in ester character, without reduction in hop character. And that goes a really long ways. And I highly suggest, um, this is not a plug, there's a brewery called um, Athletic, and they have uh, cans here. There's another um, English brewery that there's also um, low alcohol. They're really good. So try one of the IPAs and try to do it blind and give it to an unsuspecting friend that really likes pale ales or IPAs and see if he or she knows that it's non-alcoholic. Yeah. And I guarantee they won't know. Yeah. And that is pretty impressive. But and to couple with that, just with, from a business standpoint, the low and no alcohol business is gonna, it's not stopping. It will continue, it hasn't plateaued yet. And so this is a direct capitalist plug uh, for a business model. Um, and just think, you could open it up to entire cultures um, that have yet to get, really get tapped into because for whatever reason, uh, personal reasons or otherwise, but you just don't want to have alcohol. And that growth rate is not slowing down. It'll only go up, the low and no alcohol. And we touched uh, Lalamon, for example, on fermenters. Uh, there are uh, yeasts that are available that don't ferment maltose, maltose trios. And so you could utilize those to your benefit as well. And those have been, not GMO, but they've been engineered selective breeding over uh, oh, 
many, many studies, many generations. And we're honing it in. We're doing yeah. actually a really good job as um, uh, brewing scientists. So. Yeah, just to touch on what you were saying about seeing if you can trick somebody, there was a really nice bit of research done where they, they got a, a non-alcoholic beer and the alcoholic version of that beer, uh, put them in glasses, unlabeled, just A and B, and got people to taste them. So in the first round of tasting, they let people know which one was which and asked them how they felt about it, what they thought. So obviously it was like positive views about the alcoholic version and negative ones about the non-alcoholic one. Mm -hmm. Uh, got the same group of people back into the pub, again, just labeled A and B, but this time they lied to them. Um, and they had the same thoughts about the, what they thought they were drinking, uh, but it, it was all, all in the mind, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's all about getting over that preconception. So you really need, the, the, I think one of the problems with calling it low and no mm -hmm. is by using a negative word like no, you're, it's like you've taken away um, and people don't understand that these are really difficult drinks to make. Um, and, you know, if, if a soft drink company had made something that tasted that good, um, they'd be given awards for it. Yes. So I don't, I, I, we just have to find a way to get over that preconception and maybe think of other names for it as well. And I think consumers are warming up to it as well. So it's another, yeah. it's another big space to, to watch closely. So staying on the theme of yeast, Steph, I'm going to start with you on this one. So thinking about how much yeast has advanced in the past 10 years, and we were talking about this yesterday when we yeah. said yeast is finally having its heyday. Yeast yeah. is sexy. Yeast is yes. exciting. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to comment on what yeah. you've seen in the most recent advancements in the industry? Yeah, that's, that's one thing. It had it, always been a bugbear for me because I was working in yeast research and everyone like it was always cool malt and cool hops and then they're like oh yeah they forgot about yeast like and i was like you just have sweet sticky wort if it wasn't for yeast um, you know it really makes the beer what it is um, and i i did a research project on bottle conditioned beers where we took the exact same base beer and all we did was seed the the bottles with different strains of yeast um, and they tasted completely different. They had different carbonation levels. The size of the bubbles were different. It really changed the whole perception of the beer. And it was just a few hundred cells, like just building up upon the beer that was already there. Um, so yeah, I just, I just think there's such huge potential, um, you know, for these little microbes to to change the drinks like sector completely. Are there yeah. any advancements that you can kind of see or think that are coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I mean, obviously a big one is like GMO. Yep. Um, the, it's a lot more in the States at the moment. Um, and I, I think, you know, when you read up about these things that I, I think there's a, a lot more people accepting the idea of GMO. Um, you know, it, it's not going to be like a two-headed sheep kind of thing. It's um, like it's done properly. It's very controlled, and we know what exactly what the outcome is. Um, and then you know, there's there's more options out there. So you know, it's it's again just speeding up that that process. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we we know exactly what genetics we need, so we just put it in there. So yeah, watch the space then. Watch yeah. the space. <laughs> so. Todd, your research is on Kvike yeast, and Kvike yeast is another one of those yeast strains that has really come into the mainstream brewing realm, really. Do you want to comment on that? 
Sure. Uh, Kvikis, uh, they're traditional land race Norwegian strains, cultures. Uh, many times they're from remote farms or towns in Norway that have been passed down generation, 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 with very little written uh, information about them, a lot of word of mouth. Often these cultures are going to be with multiple strains. Uh, for example, um, Tormagarden has uh, 10 unique isolates, at least that they've found so far, uh, within. Uh, they're all going to be POF negative. None of them are diastaticus. Uh, the ones that you would purchase uh, do not have um, uh, lactic acid bacteria uh, species within. So these are going to be clean, non-souring. Some can create a higher amount of organic acid, so be mindful of your pH. Um, so what I did for the particular research project, and I'm going to be continuing it next, uh, next month, November, will be taking isolates from these blends and uh, doing fermentations at various percentages and trying to figure out if some are just along for the ride and, um, and some do the heavy lifting and then doing a GC mass spec and doing spider plots of the ester higher alcohol profiles and can then figure out which one of these isolates that you actually very well may like. Because flavor is everything. Um, you can have, give love to yeast. Mm -hmm. uh, yeast is a, a really a beautiful creature. <laughs> and there's means by which we can deal with beers. For example, say we have a, a, a hazier beer due to the yeast doesn't want to flock out. Well, we can deal with that. Or we want phenolics. Okay, well, we can just change yeast strain for POF negative. Or other aspects of fermentation, uh, increasing or decreasing uh, ester profiles or overall alcohol. And so the flavor and the aroma profile of the beer that you want to make, the massive percentage of that is going to be yeast driven. So your yeast selection is going to be really, really important. So um, another aspect of the flavor profile is taking Kvike yeast, which, uh, mind you, there's uh, scores of them. There's uh, easily 80 different uh, strains out there, cultures. And they normally, like our 37 degrees, ales are going to be round um, room temperature. Uh, these will successfully ferment at 35, excess of 35 degrees, and you can go grain to glass in a week. You can also ferment with them. A lot of this is anecdotal, so what I want to be doing in the future is to do um, formalized uh, analysts or, um, analytic testing and sensory analysis to prove that if you ferment them at normal ale temperatures, uh, they can be very lager-like. That could be a major game changer because as opposed to occupying that fermenter or bright tank, conditioning tank, lagering tank for say three weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, um, you can easily cut that in half. And that's a direct <laughs> economic uh, impact for your brewery. So that's uh, really exciting. Um, not to do a commercial plug, but uh, Omega Yeast makes uh, Lutra, which is a isolate that they found out of the Hornadol uh, culture. And that is extremely lager-like. So if you want to make a faux pilsner, this is the way to go. Yep. So we'll be yep. looking out mm -hmm. for the reports coming from your research then. Mm -hmm. So we could probably talk about yeast for a while, but let's transition yeah. out of yeast <laughs> and move on to malt. So one thing um, I'm extremely conscious of, and I'm sure everybody else is in this industry, is that we also really depend on the agricultural sector, not only for our hops, but also for our malt. So Stephanie, what have you seen um, in some of your customers that they've been having to deal with the, with the challenges that we've seen in things like low, low yields and harvests and 
just challenges with having uh, prices of malt increase as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's been a very difficult time for people. Um, the costs of everything are going up, yeah. uh, not just for malt. Um, and uh, I'd say one of the big things that I've noticed in the past couple of years is that the sort of customers where if I spoke to them about um, adding um, extra enzymes into the mash, that um, that it, it would just be a big no-no for them, that because of those price increases and then wanting to get the most out of whatever raw materials they've got and whatever tank space that they've got, that they're now considering what those enzymes do, trialing them, and then finding out that efficiency has uh, increased and improved um, and it just means that they, they can then offset that so yes raw materials have got more expensive but they've made those raw materials more efficient so they, they're not having to put up the price of their beers to their customers up by quite so much so it's just giving a bit of flexibility in that region yeah absolutely absolutely and Todd, you were mentioning some really interesting research going on at the University of Nottingham yesterday, um, just thinking about the future and sustainability of malt. Do you want to elaborate on it, please? Sure. So one of the uh, critical um, topics uh, for the past probably 20 years now has been reducing our carbon footprint. And you don't necessarily have to look at it as, you know, I'm trying to save the world or anything like that, which is, it will help. Um, just it's keeping your costs lower. You're using less electricity or whatnot. So to correlate directly with what uh, Margot was mentioning, so there's a PhD uh, candidate right now, Andrew Folks, and he's working with Anheuser-Busch InBev um, as well as uh, Bortmalt. And the kilning step of malting is extremely energy um, dependent. It's very, very intensive for electricity and energy use. And so he is working on a pretty novel idea and in the um, free drying and forced drying stage of kilning is using microwaves, which is really interesting. And I couldn't give you a number, but the amount of energy is a fraction of what it is uh, to conventional kilning. And I thought to myself, I was like, wait a minute, a microwave? Do you know how big these malt houses are? He's like, it's fully scalable. And that is really interesting. And it also kind of blows it around like a popcorn popper. <laughs> yeah. And we'll use the microwaves and um, it, it'll uh, dry it out from the inside out. So I was curious if it goes like literally like popcorn, it'll torrify. Yeah. He's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's uh, really interesting uh, for that, for energy reduction uh, in carbon footprint. Uh, and then also with malting was a, I guess you're, cohort yep. at, uh, for your PhD as well. Yes, so yes. So, uh, segue to yeah, Selena. Um, uh, my, my good friend, uh, Selena Dougalin, she, uh, she works at Murphy's now as well, um, but we met one another while we were doing our PhDs. Um, so I was upstairs in the, in the yeast research and she was downstairs looking at uh, malt. Um, so she did a project on uh, green malt um, and you know she came up with some like really good results from that um, and you know a lot of good techniques and and the thing with green malt is it, it's it's never going to completely replace malt obviously not you know there's you've got to there's all different kinds of sectors and all recipes and you've got to um, be able to transport it because not everyone's brewery is next to where the field is and these kind of things but um, it does open up some opportunities that a brewery could be located near to uh, a malting plant 
and take that green malt um, while it's still wet before they've had to dry it out and use it in a brew. And that's going to save a lot of energy, a lot of time, um, and a, a lot of transport costs as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, a really interesting piece of research. Yeah, so those you'll, you'll still need your specialty malts. So you're still going to need your um, yeah, yeah. melanoidin malt or um, Munich, light Munich, dark Munich, roasted malts. You're still going to need those, and that's fine. But the bulk, as you all know, as brewers, the massive bulk of your mash is going to be uh, base malt. And so if you could use the green malt, and um, the kilning step of malting drastically reduces the enzymatic capacity of malt as well. And so the enzyme potential is really, yeah, yeah, really definitely. strong with green yeah. malt as well. So, and I think one of the interesting things about biotechnology in our industry is that we're, we're constantly focused on biotechnology being this new, cutting edge, exciting, very sexy thing. Mm -hmm. But then we're starting to actually look back as well and bring back some heritage varietals of, of malt as well. Do you, do you have anything that you would like to build on that? Yeah, no, it's, uh, again, it, it's just exciting to see that um, you know, the, these heritage grains are, are becoming popular. Uh, the way that, you know, floor malting and, and, and people really thinking about, well, how, where has malt come from? As in, not just where did I buy it from, but the history of it. Um, and the, there's, a, there's a feeling that comes from that, I think. And so when brewers are crafting these recipes, um, there's special care and attention that's gone into it. And, and they care about the names associated with that type of malt. Um, and yeah, so that, you know, there's a lot of uh, interest in that area. Um, and I think it's nice because there's that push towards, as you say, new biotechnology, mm -hmm. but that remembering that this beer can still be traditional. We can still look back and see what people used to do, and, but we can turn it on its head as well. We could say, oh, well, they used to do that, but I'm going to mix it with this new thing and make something completely different. So, yeah, Absolutely. it's really good. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so we could probably stand up here and talk all afternoon, but nobody else would probably want to see that. So we have last couple of questions. So last question posed to you both. Um, Todd, if you'd like to go first. Based on our discussion during the session um, and anything that we haven't touched on, um, what's your perspective on the future of biotechnology in the industry? Is there anything that you're seeing that you think is going to be one of the most important things for us to focus on in the brewing industry? Good question. Uh, it's going to be across the board. I think it's going to be switching from trying to get your malt from, as far as uh, biotechnology also correlates with carbon uh, um, use reduction, is um, not getting your malt from across the world and going next door where you have your heritage malts. <laughs> And there's some romance that's associated with that. And same thing with uh, hops. Use your, always support local. I think it's always a great, uh, good thing to do. Um, we're going to have advances in yeast technology. That's going to be a major one. We're not done with that yet. Um, Alex just had a really nice presentation. And that's just one of uh, the yeast companies out there. There's actually quite a, quite a few of them. So uh, work on that. Uh, flavor stability is going to be a major one. Um, we just had a PhD. Uh, that she worked on um, reactive oxygen species and oxidative uh, issues with beer and shelf stability. And so you always want to drink your beer fresh, but sometimes it, you can't. <laughs> and it's got to um, say travel. And so shelf stability is going to be a major player for us. Um, 
Let's see, there's gotta be some new hot products that are gonna be coming <laughs> out. Um, do not be afraid of uh, using enzymes if you have a problem. I don't know why some people get weirded out by enzymes, but don't be afraid of them, They're, it's okay. Um, you're not gonna grow a third foot or anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's gonna be probably some exciting enzymes that are gonna be available. Um, let's see, what else? <laughs> Steph, is there anything yeah. that you want to build? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean, the thing I would say is that as brewers, you are the, the kings and queens of consistency. Um, you take whatever life throws at you, whether, you know, energy costs, um, climate change, um, a push towards being more sustainable, but you still, you know, put that through the brewery, you make changes where you need to, and you're still making like the amazing beer that you made last year. Um, and, you know, so I think those things are, are going to be pushing like, people's agendas, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I definitely think there's going to be products that are going to come out to like, help you to do that uh, in, a, in a more uh, sustainable way. Yeah, so I think that's going to be the big thing, really. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. So I think just to close, one thing that we all mentioned yesterday and discussed that was really important is to honor our past of biotechnology because if it weren't for the brewing industry, the head chemist at the Carlsberg Labor Laboratory in Copenhagen wouldn't have invent invented the pH scale that we use throughout the entire brewing process. We wouldn't have pasteurization from Louis Pasteur trying to pasteurize beer. That gives us milk and other food products that we use. We also wouldn't have modern refrigeration, so we have a lot to honor and thank beer for, and then also to look towards the future. The Brewers Journal Podcast is a production of Reby Media. Produced and hosted by Tim Sheehan. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. The executive producer is Rory Harris. And special thanks to Margot Huseman, Stephanie Brindley and Todd Isbell.